welcome to another episode of the Trading Desk Podcast. My name is Joshua Thanos. I'm your host. And today we have a very special guest, probably my favorite guest uh, of all time, and that is Michael Manjos. Hey, Mike, how are you? Good, Josh. Always great to be with you. Glad you keep having me back. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're listen, no one's more plugged into the market. Um, you know, you and I have constant conversations, mostly by text because you're so busy or traveling. <laughs> but um, it's always good to to spend an hour or so just kind of discussing what's happening in the watch market with you. So uh, today, that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to examine what some people are calling a crash, what other people are calling a correction, and some people are calling it dip. So we're going to examine that today from from you know our perspective. Somebody might, like myself who's a salesperson who deals with thousands of clients and uh, Michael Manjos, who's the head of global trading for Watchbox, who's you know dealing with you know millions and millions of dollars worth of inventory on a daily basis and dealing with dealers and all that. So, um, so let's go ahead and get started. But first, as always, we have our customary risk check. If I, I can make a guess as to what you uh, what you're wearing, but why don't you go ahead and tell everybody? <laughs> I am wearing my uh, white gold GMT meteorite. That's right. Exactly. Love this thing. Hasn't come off my wrist since I've gotten it. Uh, you know, uh, I just love it. Love the weight. Love the look. It is a little harder to tell the time on, I'll be honest, but the meteorite <laughs> is so pretty that I don't care. That's awesome. I know that's a grail watch for you, and you picked that up what uh, late last year, or did you pick it this no, year? No, about two months ago. Just oh, this two year. Months ago. That was my uh, nice. my two kids graduating college present to myself. <laughs> oh, there you go. That's a, that's, a, that's a great reason to celebrate. <laughs> I didn't buy them a watch. I bought myself one. <laughs> Good man. That's right. Well, they, they should have paid for it. Well, exactly. Hopefully one day they will. Yeah. That's awesome, and I and, well, and I know the way you wear your watches, so I can't wait to next time I see you, I want to see what that watch looks like. Oh, it's, it's going to be beat to hell. Of course, oh, it's yeah. going to be to hell. Why not? That's awesome. That's awesome, and and that's a watch that not very many have been delivered. So I'm I'm curious to talk about maybe the market on that watch too, because I I'm trying to think. I don't think I've I've sold one of them yet. I don't think I've purchased one yet. Um, they just don't seem to be trading uh, at a high clip. I I don't know. If, I don't think we even have one in inventory. Possibly. We don't have one right now. No. There you go. Well, maybe yours will be the first. <laughs> <laughs> no chance. No chance. All right. So um, it's funny, actually. So on my wrist, I have my Panerai 233, which is uh, a watch that will never end up leaving my collection unless I trade it for the dot dial version of this watch, which I think we have one in stock. And I've I've kicked around the idea of maybe doing a trade, but um, I'm keeping this right now. So I'm wearing that watch, 44 millimeter, 1950s case with this, this bubble crystal made of sapphire, AM, PM, 8-day manual wine movement um but the watch that i've been wearing the most has been my rolex i have a, a rolex Datejust that i picked up uh, a few months ago and I don't, for whatever reason that watch has been on the wrist uh, more than anything else so um love that but uh but yeah today i have i have my panerai and, I, and it's funny we could talk about that too but um, i'm seeing and maybe it's just in my little bubble since i'm i guess the quote-unquote panerai guy but i'm seeing a little uptick in demand for panerais which is funny because Prior to this madness, that like, Panerai is a summer watch. So like every summer, you'd start you'd see people like looking for those watches, and and you know, and for the last five years, you really haven't. People have always just been chasing Rolex and other hype watches. But uh, Panerai is making a little bit of a comeback, and I'm I'm happy for that. Um, all right, so let's go ahead and get started. So just to preface things, um, the the stock market and crypto have been taking a massive plunge, and I think that's kind of what tipped off a lot of this stuff. Right, like it made people a little bit uneasy, and then, then they were people were waiting for. I feel like a lot of these watch prices to either stop accelerating or stop going up, uh, and then also come back down a little bit. Right, so, um, 
why don't I leave it to you? Why don't you kind of explain what you're seeing right now, and we can go into depth in terms of models and brands and all. Yeah, that. no, I think uh, I think your point is right. I mean, I think nobody was shocked that we'd see some kind of correction because you know between I'm going to say January and April, we saw probably the fastest run up in watch prices in you know the thirty something years that I've been doing this. Um, it was just literally like every week prices were going up. And I'm talking about Nautiluses, I'm talking about, you know, Ceramic Daytonas, the real iconic, flashy, uh, grail watches that everybody was chasing were just constantly going up. And you'd go to another show a month later and prices were up 10% and it was just, it was constant. And, you know, uh, I think all of us knew down deep that, you know, trees don't go to the sky and at some point things at least plateau. Um, but like we barely even saw our plateau. We saw that kind of peak and then start coming right back off. And I definitely think uh, the crypto market uh, was in the news, you know, basically, you know, lost half of its value from its peak. The stock market, especially NASDAQ, is off tremendously. Uh, obviously, you know, the war, the, you know, there's a lot of, you know, not great economic news. Um, so I don't think it's a surprise to anyone. I think the problem is it's a surprise to a lot of people who are new to this game. So, you know, if you started four or five years ago in this business, be it collecting, be it selling, which a lot of guys got into the market in the last five years, um, you only knew that the fact that watches went up. I mean, a lot of my guys here, the traders here, you know, they don't know how to handle explaining to somebody that it's worth less or I'm paying less today than I was a month ago because it's not an experience they've ever had. Um, like I said, I mean, I think, you know, I've been doing this since the early 80s. Um, we've had some great crashes. I mean, <laughs> the late 80s had a great crash, 91, 2007. I mean, those were crashes and they were something. Um, this is not that. Uh, it is a correction for sure. Um, but if you start looking at the charts and you look at the lines, um, I tell a lot of people, it's like, yeah, you know, Daytona peaked in the low 50s, white Daytonas. And they were still trading pretty regularly there. You know, we were buying them in the high 40s, selling them in the low 50s. They were selling every week. Um, but if you go back six months, it was a $35,000 watch. Um, and it's not quite down there yet. I mean, we've, we've got them posted 37 to 39, and I think... I crashed the market a little bit because everybody on the planet was asking in the low 40s, and I'm like, I know where this is going. And we had plenty, so I'd rather lead it down than follow it down. Um, and I think we're going to end up back in the th mid-30s. But again, if you think about it, and if you look at a two- or three-year line, it's a very steady growth with this horrible bubble in the middle <laughs> that just... You know, it kind of went from 25 to 27 to 29. And I'm talking over a couple of years mm -hmm. to kind of get to that mid-30s range. And then it just went to 50, and now it's coming right back down. In, yeah. in 90 days, really, four months. So yeah. it's just like the, the prices went too high too fast. Um, and they're corrected now, or correcting. Uh, they're still coming down. I think there's still, in certain models, some room to grow and to come down but it's not across the board this isn't like crypto where everything went down in half and i don't know anything except maybe you know a couple of um steel nautilus models 
but even those I don't think have come down in half. No. So maybe uh, <clears throat> like the, the hypiest of the hype watches, ones that we saw at like auction, like the green Nautiluses um, that were seven eight $800,000 asking. Right. It seems like they, they have come down tremendously. Um, but yeah, like the ones that people were just chasing for the sake of chasing, right? So like, you know, you see somebody wearing it, you know, go, well, that guy's just extremely rich. That's why he's wearing that watch, right? So like those watches, and you know, I've had a theory on this, and I think there's been some evidence, I don't think it'll ever be able to be proven, but that there was some dealers who didn't want to diversify in terms of, you know, buying kind of everything that's out there. They wanted to focus on a few different brands and just keep buying and selling those exact same brands because things can become easier that way. You can, you know, narrow your your focus and and you can kind of stay with the same little group of buyers and sellers and whatnot. And they were kind of trying to push those markets up and it seemed like it worked. Um, and then, you know, so in some ways, I would, I would, I'm accusing these people of kind of artificially pumping the market because even like, for example, the Daytona came out in 2016, the, um, the ceramic Daytona, and it was immediately like a $25,000 watch. Right. But eight months to a year after that, it was actually down in the teens for a little bit, like the high teens. So like there was a fluctuation there. Um, and then, but then early 2018, that's when it kind of started taking its slow rise, right? And there was a few little dips here and there. So it would go from like 25 to 30 and then back down to 25 and, you know, make it reasonable. And also the market was used to be cyclical, right? So that during the summer, for the most part, retail would slow. I mean, a lot of dealers would close up. A lot of jewelry shops for, I mean, as long as you've been working, would take off like two months during the summer. Oh, God. And they couldn't do that Especially for the last five years. Right. Everybody, that was just normal for this industry. You would take off two months during the summer, but you couldn't do that um, for the last five years because you would just miss out on so much business because the, the you know all these new buyers are coming in to the market. So, um, so yeah, I mean, we saw... Like, what was it? Um, rose gold Nautiluses, uh, the 5980s, uh, the 5711s just exploded in value. So, like, certain, like, very, very hypey watches. Obviously, the Daytonas got to got to the 50s. And then what happened also is that it seems like some dealers were not prepared to take an L, take a loss on, on an inventory because they had never really done that before. So, some guys had started really getting, ramping up in, like, late 2020 when things started kind of really booming. Um they you know they're competing in terms of uh, the prices that they wanted to pay, and the only way that they could earn business is not based on reputation because they're either relatively new or they're small, so they just had to pay the most money. So like we would we would get outbid pretty regularly Absolutely. on those types of watches, and we were happy to let somebody else you know pay the last dollar for something like that because you know we're like okay listen we have a large customer base we have a reputation you know we're we're happy to pay strong, but we're not going to just cut our margins to nil and lose money in order to compete with some small operation. Let them do their business. But then now, you know, guys who were paying fifty to sell the watch for fifty-two, and now the watch is thirty-eight, they just refuse to drop the price. It's like, what are they going to do? Yeah, you know, they've gotten that's, that's frozen. Like I mean, the the biggest danger in any market is is not falling; it's freezing. Uh, you know, a falling market is still a trading market, and that's fine. And we know how to trade up, we know how to trade down. Um, what you don't want to see is a market freeze. And outside of a couple of models that people didn't move on, um, we're still seeing, you know, great transactions. I mean, it's interesting because, you know, May is typically a strong month. Um, you know, we had huge growth plans this year, and we're still on budget for May. 
Um, but obviously prices are down in some cases 10, 15, 20%, uh, but we're doing more units because the prices mm -hmm. are down. So some guys are looking at it like, hey, yeah, I didn't want the Daytona when it was 52, but at 38, you know, I can justify it. Um, and we're seeing some of that. So uh, I like that part of it. Uh, obviously it just means we work a little more and grind a little harder, yeah. uh, but that's okay. I mean, that's what well, we're used to. It was, it wasn't supposed to be as easy as it got. And I think right. that's part of the problem is it got so easy for so many people and so many new people came in that it was just, you know, buy a watch at retail, sell it over retail, and you were a watch dealer. Um, <laughs> you didn't really need any education. You really didn't know anything about watches. But, you know, I knew that it's going to be worth more next week than it is this week. So I just buy as much as I can, spend all my money, and then cash in next week and do it all over again. Well, yeah. obviously the game has changed. I think also the the front supply, uh, you know, losing Russian market, losing China, um, you know, to the lockdown and the war has definitely flowed more goods onto the market because, you know, honestly, the Chinese and the Russians were pretty much when goods went into that market, they were hard to get out. Mm -hmm. You know, like I went to Moscow and we did it, but it's not easy. Uh, and That's right. That was like two years ago. Three years pre, ago. Pre-pandemic. Yeah, I won't be going yeah, back. I and, forgot all about that. Yeah. No. <laughs> and like... Yeah, you're not going back. You know, buying and selling into China is complicated because of the tariffs and stuff. So when, when new goods tend to go there, they would stay there. Mm -hmm. So all those goods that are now flowing into Europe or in the U.S. are now hitting the secondary market because a good percentage of them get flipped. And I mean, that's just a reality. Um so I think you're seeing more goods come in on the front end. You're seeing a little bit less supply and demand on the back end because the flippers don't have as much upside. So there's more risk. You know, people thought they could buy any Rolex, you know, two-tone date just, you know, 36 millimeter gold day date and make money on it. And it was the case. Well, they could for about three months. Yes. But like, you know, uh, you know, those are watches that always sold at a discount and certainly did in the secondary market. So I think getting that back to normal, I think is a very good thing. I mean, like a 36 millimeter steel and gold date just is not an over retail watch. No. I mean, maybe the new special dial, but again, a year later, there's another special dial. So that one's going to be discounted. So that part of the market was a little silly. I'm happy to see that part get out. I understand rarity. And the, and the other thing that fascinates me is what we're seeing right now is our sub $10,000 business is incredibly strong because we've adjusted prices. And our over $100,000 business is setting records. Yeah. So the guys who really had money and got a little scared of the prices, now that they've come back, we're seeing a lot of activity there um, and a lot of trading there. So I like to see that. It's kind of that middle of the market that's kind of a little frozen in place. Uh, well, I think so the middle of the market used to be like 15,000 now, but because the prices drove so high, middle of the market now is like 30 to I was going to say 25 to 50 is kind of how I look at yeah. it. Yeah, you know what I mean? 25 to 50. But it used to be, middle of the market used to be like $15,000. Absolutely. When I started. No, I mean, our yeah. average transaction has tripled in the last two or three years. I mean, there's no question That's about right. it. Um, you know, because of the, you know, we definitely pushed into the higher product. Um, there's thinner air up there, but it's definitely more traction there. Um, and the other thing that's interesting is like we've had, even in this last 30 days where we've seen this correction, 
we've had a couple of very successful auctions. Mm-hmm. Um, we've actually had another one last night um, that was decent on certain Jorns. Now, you know, the overall it wasn't great. Uh, where Phillips, I would say, was great the last time, and they're having another one the end of this week. So we're very curious to see how that one uh, does. But uh, overall, we're still seeing strong auction results, especially on rare pieces. You know, there was a, a T10 that went in, a Jorn T10 that went up today. That brought a million five. I mean, like, wow. yeah, I mean, that's a big number. So, I mean, like, that part of the market is still very healthy. And the guys who were, you know, if you're at that level, you're obviously, you know, not worried about your uh, stock portfolio. You've got enough put away that you're in good shape. Um, but those guys are still active and they're still chasing the, the rare stuff. It's just kind of that the commodity product that's currently produced that I think is still going to, you know, possibly come down a little more. Level out, right. Well, so, okay, that, so you're giving me some interesting points that, like, I hadn't thought about. So <clears throat> the chi- the lockdowns in China, so I, you know, I used to live in Shanghai. I have some friends there, and I've spoken to them, and they're locked down, right? Um, so that, that makes sense. No, nothing really coming in or out of China. And then, obviously, Russia with the madness that's happening over there. So, yeah, there, there is an influx of supply, and then that makes a lot of sense to me because I'm talking to customers who are – so I have customers who, you know, a few years ago, they've been longtime Rolex or Paddock customers. And, you know, a few years ago, they would they would every once in a while say, hey, what is this worth? You know, I was offered this by my AD. I want to keep buying from them so I can keep buying from them. So what is this worth? And I would buy from them. And now, like, I have guys who are those same guys who are, like, offering me every week. Here's another watch. Here's another Yeah, because they're getting many more calls now uh, than they were because, the yeah. you know, the front retail dealers are getting more product. Um, and it's just sure. because of the, the shifting of supply. It's not that Rolex is producing more. It's just no. there are fewer markets to push it into right now because of that. Yeah. And again, yeah. that makes once sense. China opens back up, I think we'll see a little stabilization. Because one, I think, you know, if you think about it, like what is the first thing you did when, you know, after you were locked down for a couple months, like you went out, you wanted to go buy yourself something, you hadn't done anything fun. So I think we're going to see a big tick up uh, once they get out and, you know, can get back into the market. I think we'll see some demand that we may not have seen before. Um, you know, I don't think the Russian market's coming back anytime soon, for sure. Uh, mm-hmm. So that part's gone. And again, not that it was a top five market, but it was certainly a top, you know, 15 market. Yeah, it's worth something. Yeah, you know what I mean? I mean, there's a certain percentage of the allocation of the world that was going to Russia, um, and especially for certain brands. Mm-hmm. Uh, or Breguet. Breguet, Breguet yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, there was a couple of brands that really did a lot of business. Oh, uh, and, I just thought about that. You, Nard, uh, Narden yeah. was just bought. Uh, this must be like a, if I'm if I'm working for Narden, I'm looking for a new job. I feel like, right? <laughs> like, because I feel like every expensive rose gold Narden is sold in Russia. It has to be. It, it certainly huh. was a good percentage of it, without a doubt. Mm-hmm. I haven't even looked at the market for Nardans. I wonder if, if it's down. It's, it's again, they've done a few good things. I've had a couple of great conversations with them in the last six months uh, with the new management because they're interested in the secondary market. And they do reach out. They did reach out to us, and we've had some nice conversations because uh, we like to have good relationships with the brands. Um, and there's some nice guys uh, who are pretty sharp. Um, you know, I gave them some opinions. I mean, uh, you know, I don't think they liked all of them. You know, 
I told them what I thought about a free having a crown, but that's a whole other story we'll talk about. Uh, you rub somebody the wrong way? No. Shocking. <laughs> Shocking. Well, I, mean, like, I guess I shouldn't have told them it was a dumb idea, but it was a dumb idea to put a crown on a freak. I mean, like, come on, who does that? You should know better if you know anything about your brand. So, like, come on. Um, yeah. But, no, some of the new skeletons and stuff has done well. And, again, they'll find their way. I think it's got enough history and it's a good brand. Um, well, they don't make that many watches. Where they make like four or five thousand? I think. I think they're going to do seven thousand this year. They peaked. Okay. Like ten years ago, they peaked at about fifteen thousand when they were in the heyday. Um, so they compare that to Panerai, that makes right. seventy thousand watches a year. Like, yeah, and Arden is really a boutique manufacturer. Right. But now it's going to be yeah. interesting to see now that the market is, I believe, going to normalize. And when I say normalize, it's like, um, you know. You talk about Panerai, you talk about Jaeger, you talk about IWC, which were kind of like middle-of-the-road brands. Um, mm-hmm. But they became hot because you couldn't get a Rolex and you couldn't get a Paddock and you couldn't get anything else. So you'd pay up for those. And, you know, people were selling them at retail all day long. Whereas five years ago, it was easy to get 15% off, 20% off on those brands. Um, I don't know what that's going to bring because the... The distribution has changed so much that now so much of it is company stores and boutiques. Uh, I just don't know that they're going to be able to keep that going without having that uh, financial incentive of being able to pick up a watch. You know, a lot of guys would go to boutiques and buy three or four watches so they could create a relationship and then get the one piece that was, you know, 30 or 40 grand over retail. If that piece isn't 30 or 40 grand over retail, you know, are all those guys going to be banging down the doors to get those three or four other pieces? Well, so so the new Bronzos are, uh, I mean, I don't want to call it a flop because it's like, you don't want to judge a watch by how much it goes over retail, but the new Bronzos don't go over retail anymore. They, those took like a massive dump. Um, the I don't even know the reference number, which is stupid. Which is kind of painful because I'm the same way. I don't know the reference number. It's like, yeah, and I think unless you really understand how hot Bronzo was at one point, Mm-hmm. But they just beat that horse to death. Right. Well, the, the the two original bronzos, the 382 and the 507, are still strong. That's it when it comes to bronzo. Which, I mean, again, like, so they're, they're making a new bronzo every year. They made a 42 millimeter, which is nice. I haven't seen it in person. I just assume it's going to be nice. That'll probably be somewhat strong. But I'm seeing rose gold panerites, like 42 millimeter rose gold submersibles. Um, I think it's a 684, 682. That watch is still relatively strong, still trading in the 20s. And then like random references. So for example, I'm working on a deal for uh, a blue dial, um, is it America's Cup or it's a 1303, right? So I didn't even notice this watch is going for like five grand over retail. A Panera going five grand over retail, that's not a Bronzo. Like, so we're seeing some benefit. And I think that so long as a Submariner goes over retail, then you're going to have overflow of like Panerai's, IWC's, even Omega. Like the Omega Seamasters are still relatively strong. I mean, they used to, I remember the days when we used to buy those for like 20 cents on the dollar is what we'd buy those back for, for right? So if you bought a Seamaster at, at retail, you'd be getting, you'd be losing 80% of your money. Now it's not the case. You're getting back, you know, in some cases, 75, 80% of your money is what you're getting back on when you're selling the watch. So, um, so long as like, Core model Rolexes are still. I mean, it, a, a Samariner shouldn't. A steel Samariner shouldn't be twenty grand. I think yeah. that I saw them like near that, uh, just just like you know whatever a few weeks ago. Now they're 
down like just below 15, I think, right? Is that right? Yeah, they're in that kind of mid-teens now. Um, so it's like four or 5,000. Yeah, retail, which is so to me still a lot because yeah. it's probably one of the most produced Rolexes there is, but it's also the most iconic. Oh, yeah. uh, but again, mm-hmm. I don't think those are going to be sitting on the shelf again anytime soon. Um, mm-hmm. But I also don't think it's going to be double retail. And I think no. that got- when the dust settles, yeah. these all these steel sport models are still not going to be really available through retail. But like, so I am getting, I'm, I am seeing people like who've been on a waiting list, which I've done a podcast about. And honestly, I, so I'm being proven wrong about that. I think when I did the podcast, I think I was right at that point. But <laughs> things have slightly changed. So like people, I have I have a friend who are actually, so a cousin of mine um, was asking about you know a Rolex. And I said, you know, I don't know. We could talk to the, to the guys in Philly. You have to go up there, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, and he's, um, and I'm like, you know, I'll try to put in a word for you right here. And he's like, okay, do your best. So he gets a call from mayors locally that, you know, he, he talked to them a year and a half, two years ago. And they said, hey, we got the watch. He called me. I don't need it anymore. We got it. And I and, and I told him, hey, dude, because he told me, he's like, oh, they put me on the list. And I go, yeah, okay, well, listen to my podcast. They're not getting you that watch. <laughs> they came up with the watch. They came up with the watch. So, um I guess, you know, now thinking about what's happening in China and Russia and seeing kind of, and this was the other point that I, I've been making. I did an Instagram post about this and I've said it, you know, beat the, beat the horse to dead, but um, the, the learning curve of that, <clears throat> you know, it used to take, say, like a decade or so to get from buying your first Rolex to getting to like a padded trust watch, right? And that was really a learning curve, like understanding, learning about the brand, seeing the value, realizing that, okay, I can put my money in this. It's not going to just be, I'm not spending 100000 or spending, say, $25,000 for something that's worth 5000 right. $5, Like becoming comfortable with that now with social media, YouTube, um, and, you know, all that, you're, the learning curve is shortened. And my prediction was three to five years because that's kind of what I was seeing from customers that I know got into it right in that, like, 27, 2018 mark or, or a little bit, you know, before, after, whatever. Um, and where are we at? We're at five years since the beginning of the boom. Late 20, like November 2017, I feel like, was the beginning of the boom. And so we're almost at five years there. And what are we seeing? We're seeing guys moving in more towards uh, like traditional dress watches, complicated pieces, handmade, you know, uh, independence, things like that. So these guys that started with Rolex, maybe they bought a Submariner or a GMT or a Datejust, whatever it may be. Now they're looking at the, uh, they're looking at paddock dress watches, they're looking at Debitunes, looking at Moser. Um, so that's going to take a little bit of pressure. Like when I and, and let's preface this, I don't think there's going to be a situation where you can walk in to an authorized dealer as a new customer and. Buy a Samaritan out of the case. I don't see that happening no, for another decade. Yeah, that's something that you could have done five years yes. ago. You can't. I don't. I don't see that happening. No, uh, or not at least so much. Decade. It's not going to happen. But to your point about the dress thing, it's very interesting because you know we obviously Paddock's a very important brand for us. It's one of our biggest, um, and it's one of the places that's taken the biggest hit. But really, only on certain things, and it's really Aquanauts and Nautiluses. Where the mm-hmm. sports stuff went crazy, but like if you look at the auctions and you look at what's online right now, fifty nine seventies and fifty two seventies have never been stronger, and I mean even right. from a month ago, they've gone up, and mm-hmm. some of the classic uh, chronos and that stuff is really becoming collectible again because I think people have finally figured out that yeah you know 
a 5970, certainly in almost any color, I love the platinum ones, but is so much rarer than a green Nautilus that they made 1,200 of. You know what I mean? In one year, they put yeah. 1,200 in the market. And that's a half million dollar watch? What? You know, it doesn't make any sense that that's going to be 10 times retail. Um, when you can buy a, you know, 5970P for basically under what it retailed for when they stopped making it. Mm -hmm. um, and it's so much rarer and so much more classic. Um, and I think that's exactly what we're seeing. We're still seeing Jorn prices have held up shockingly well. Um, I don't know if that lasts forever, but it's certainly, you know, CBs are still bringing 90 to 100 grand. And, you know, brass movements have gone nuts. So that stuff's holding still up crazy. Well, still. Um, and some of the classic independents have really done well. Um, and we're still mm -hmm. seeing that hold, which is interesting to see. Um, but it's those sport models that really went nuts. Um, you know, I don't know where the 5711 is going to settle. Um, but I really think... It's discontinued, which that helps. Yes, again. exactly. I mean, now it's fixed. So we know it's done. Uh, but I know they're going to come out with a new Nautilus this year. It was mm -hmm. just going to. So it's just a matter of, you know, does it settle at 100? Is it still going to be in the low hundreds, 150? I think 150 for 5711 is crazy. I still do. Yeah. I mean, I think it should be a $100,000 watch. And I think it's going to settle back there. And that's, I remember yeah. when it finally broke 100 and we all thought it was nuts. Um, you know, when I started here four well, years ago, it was forty to $50,000. And they were mostly getting sold to dealers. Yeah. Who were... I was advising guys to sell it. I have customers like, hey, do you think I should sell it for, you know, whatever, 35 grand or whatever it was? And I said, yeah, man, this is crazy. And I mean, I couldn't be more wrong about that. Um, but it's just, you know, it's, it's, you know, I've said it for a while. Uh, 150 grand Nautilus may be the worst $150,000 watch you can buy, right? Absolutely. I mean, if you want to buy it, go ahead and do it. But I mean, it, you, to spend $150,000 on that watch like that, it has, I mean, it, obviously, it has history. It has some DNA, but it's not. This is not like paddock DNA. This is not paddock history. You know, this was a watch that they made to see if they could sell it. This was not like, hey, you know, this is how the brand started making these complicated dress watches, you know, annual calendar, chronographs, things like that, right? Um, yeah, I mean, Rolex makes a little bit more sense because the Submariner is its DNA. Right. Right. Like no question about it. That really is the DNA, and that really what grew the brand to what it is today. Mm -hmm. But yeah, those sports paddocks are cool and they're interesting. And you know, you know me, I've never been an Aquanaut guy. The Nautilus has a reason mm -hmm. to live. I just never loved it. Um, but just, I do not understand $150,000 valuation on that piece. Yeah. There's just too many out there um, as well, which is the other part. I think people have got to remember, you know, long-term collectability is the best brand, rarity, you know, something special that talk about not something that they produced in big numbers and a lot of these pieces certainly the aquanauts and the nautiluses were produced in much bigger numbers than the complicated watches because they were basically three-hand watches so they could mm -hmm. crank out those movements um as opposed to you know doing high complications which is really what paddock should be doing well and also when you talk about like craftsmanship right so when you look talk about like the the artistry of the watchmaking, right? So like when you compare it say to like the art world, you know, one of the reasons why a lot of these uh, paintings and sculptures are worth so much is because there's a, there's a level of, um, you know, 
intense artistry, right? It's like long, uh, what's the, how, do, how do I describe it? So the, um, you have artisans making these things, right? So the the watchmaker that's making the Nautilus and the watchmaker that's making the 5270 or a minute repeater or whatever, these are different levels of watchmakers, right? Like this is how they, usually that's how they work, right? Like so you get, you know, the most skilled guys are going to be doing the most difficult stuff. Correct. So you're going to have a much more skilled watchmaker and maybe it's one watchmaker that's doing the watch from start to finish, whereas on this on these less complicated, less high, less finished movements and less complicated things, you're going to have maybe a beginning watchmaker. A guy who's only been doing it for ten years, not the guy who's been doing it for fifty. Correct. Um, so there is a, there's a level of uh, you know, and, and there's the rarity is, is going to be based on also like the availability of these. Well, they can only produce so many. Markets. I mean, that's the thing that. Capacity limits with artists has always been there. I mean, that's one of the things. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a limited number of you know production from an artist um, or a true high craftsman. They just can't produce that many, and they can't ramp it up. So I think that's the other part that has always been the rarity part of it. Where you know, let's be honest. I mean, the Nautiluses are mostly you know carved from a CNC machine and put a movement in that they've been making for 25 years. Um, right. That they could, if they wanted to, they could ramp that up overnight. And I wouldn't have been surprised if they did a little bit. Um, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, let's not kid ourselves. I mean, we don't know the exact production numbers, but I guarantee you, the number of Nautiluses and Aquanauts that were produced in twenty twenty one were a lot more than they were in twenty eleven. Um, you know what I mean? As a percentage of the business, yeah. I guarantee you. That they shifted mm-hmm. because you know even from a profitability standpoint you're making a steel watch and pushing them out uh, mm-hmm. as opposed to you know making watches out of gold or platinum or you know something that takes a lot more time and effort and materials uh, you know steel's cheap at the end of the day <laughs> yeah so another another brand and model that that definitely has um, has benefited from this, uh, but we've seen a li- like I'm looking right now at, at like Chrono Twenty Four pricing for um, overseas, and the blue overseas I feel like just like six weeks ago was like near. It was a hundred grand. grand. There's no it? question. It was a hundred grand. Yeah, and now they're in the sixties. So those ones, I mean, but which is funny because so you could say it crashed, but go like zoom out, you know, uh, eighteen months or twenty four months, and that watch was like. 25, 30 grand. Yeah. I mean, the so, steels and the blacks were 30. The blues might have been 35, but you're absolutely right. And then they kind of became 50 and then 60 and then ran from 60 to 100. Like, over weeks. Um, we, like, couldn't keep up. I mean, the other one that I laugh about is, you know, people often talk about the John Mayer. And, you know, mm-hmm. that was a watch that I remember very vividly because I remember the fourth quarter last year, I had five of them and they were up at 84,950 and getting no love. And I was like, Jesus, I, what the hell was I thinking? I bought five of these things. You know, nobody wants to pay 85 grand for them. I'm never going to sell one. And then, like, three days later, I turned around and they all sold. And I'm like, what did I miss? And, you know, you then a week later, they're all up over 100. And then they went running from there. I was like, God, missed that one. Um and now they've come right back down. I mean, we just lowered them this week to under 100 for the first time in, you know, mm-hmm. six months. Uh, but again, sure. I think a lot of people bet that it was going to be discontinued. It wasn't. I bet, you know, 
it just became one of those hyped watches that now got back to a level that is still two and a half times retail. I mean, at the end of the day, it's still a crazy number. It's just mm-hmm. what happens and what you got to be careful of and what we're even guilty of sometimes is you get caught up in the market because you're so close to it that like, oh my God, but that watch was 150. But it's like, it was also 60. <laughs> I mean, and I'm old enough to remember but when I was introduced, for God's sakes. It's like, there's none of this stuff, you know, happened overnight. It's just, we got thinking like, the prices we were selling at six, eight weeks ago was normal. And it really wasn't normal. I remember when when gold Daytonas were like in the high 20s trading. Yeah. Well below their retail. No, no question yeah. about it. They were easy to obtain. Nobody wanted them. You know. White gold? Nobody wanted white gold. Why would you buy white gold when they have a stainless steel? Correct. Um, and you know, and even now, like the white golds peak. Well, actually, the white golds didn't run up so much. So there, it seems like their prices are holding... Strong and, and and well, that's the other thing I want to talk to you about. So, in terms of Rolex, because it's kind of a market unto itself, the dials, the different dials. So, okay, the George, the the, the John Mayer, that one, it's it's got the green dial, but it's it, it didn't run up because it has a green dial. It ran up because of, um, you know, this perceived rarity and the fact that people thought, hey, this thing is going to get discontinued. But your meteorite dials and then just weird mother of pearl dials, things like that. And beach dials have have spiked, and they're still pretty high. Yeah. Like they've come down. The a little stone bit, dials, the beaches, like, the meteorites have held up pretty well, um, and I think mm-hmm. they should because again, very limited, very hard to come by. Mm-hmm. You're never going to see a lot of them just because of the material. Um, and a rare Rolex is a rare thing because there's really no such thing mm-hmm. as a rare Rolex. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just you know everybody's like, oh, it's rare. It's like they make a million watches a year. It's not that rare. You know, talk to me about, you know, some of these brands that make 300 watches a year and have only been in business for 10 years. That's rare. Well, and just because something rare doesn't make it, uh, uh, make it you know, valuable. Like I have from Garrick, I have the 40th ever made and the last ever made Norfolk. Right. right? So it's, it's a special watch, handmade watch. Um, you know, the movement is finished, but it's not like a special movement. But again, there's only 40 ever made. In the history of the company, and they'll never make another one if you believe the CEO. CEO. Okay, it's not worth more than I paid for. Right. <laughs> yeah. You know, so just because something's rare doesn't mean it's it's valuable. But I guess obviously, you know, there's this demand which Rolex is captivated. It's always had demand, and you know, back when in 2013, Rolex was still holding more value than any other brand, and you know, you would you would still lose 30 percent if you walked out the door with the Correct. Watch. Right, and that was great value. Correct. No, there's no question about it. I mean, this was stuff was never meant to be an investment game. It became almost the entire game, which I didn't like. I mean, everybody worries about you know what their things going to be valued. We always love to think that it's going to be worth more in a couple years, and that's great. Um, But like, we weren't doing this to retire. You were doing this because you enjoyed it and you had nice things. Um, But inevitably, it was a depreciating asset. Uh, not an escalating asset. And I think people just got a little crazy with that. And they lost some of that fun. It just became a money game. Um, but For certain. It's certainly not a crash. I mean, to me, a crash is something that, you know, just is going back to a level that we've never seen. And it's it's not a, something that's dropping in half across the board by any means. Um, so I'm not worried, worried about this market. 
I still think there's going to be some corrections on certain models because dealers are hesitant to drop prices. And a lot of the goods, uh, which is the other thing I always talked about, was like there was always certain brands, uh, Richard Meal, AP over the last few years, that really became dealer brands. And if you went to any show, dealers would have 20, 30, 40 of these pieces in a case. And they would always be in the hands of dealers. And you'd go out in the streets and you didn't see very many of them. You know what I mean? In the, in the wild. Uh, whereas, you know, you go out and you see paddocks, you see Vacherons for sure. Even Longas you see out in the wild. Dealers don't buy and collect mm-hmm. that stuff. Um, it's just not that exciting. You see more of them on the wrists of collectors. And I think that's where the markets are going to correct, where, you know, the AP perpetuals that doubled over six months uh, because it was just going in between dealers. It wasn't because everybody woke up one day and said, oh, I need to have a, you know, AP to perpetual to wear to the beach. Uh, it's just not mm-hmm. happening. Um, so I think, you know, I think we'll see some of that stuff still correct. Um, but I think we'll also get back to some of these cool pieces and the brands will readjust, the distribution will readjust. The market's pretty nimble and everybody sees what's mm-hmm. happening. So, you know, they're going to pull back supply. They're going to understand they don't need to sell everything in a day or two, which we all got in the habit. I mean, imagine how nice it would be if you could walk into a Rolex dealer and see at least some inventory. Um, yeah. Let me, yeah, let me buy a day job right. for my wife. Exactly. You it's know? like, you know, and not feel like I've been, you know, won the lottery because I got a two-tone. It's like <laughs> mm-hmm. the pendulum swang yeah. too far. I mean, it was, you know, mm-hmm. it was years ago. It was the customers were just beating up over price. And then the last two years, the dealers were like dismissing you if you didn't, uh, you know, look the part um, and wanted just to buy a watch, uh, you know, you were like you were bothering them. And, you know, we've got to come right. somewhere in between those two uh, would be really nice and healthy for the market. Because, you know, the part of this is supposed to be fun. You're supposed to be able to collect. Um, and the financial aspect is supposed to be secondary. Um, just hasn't right. been for the last couple of years. And, uh, you know, we're part of that as well. I mean, we, we're in a market. We trade watches. We buy and sell. Um, but it's no advantage to me to have it going up every day. And that's the thing that I think people always had a misconception was like, oh, you guys are great, thrilled when the prices go up every day. I'm like, I got to just buy it back at a higher price. It just takes more capital. Right. Um, there's no real advantage to me to having it be, you know, 200 as opposed to 150. Um, you know, I'd rather sell more at 100 or 150 to more guys who are active traders um, mm-hmm. than to have just just certain people who are super wealthy be able to afford this stuff. So I don't right. think having some affordability coming back is a bad thing. I don't think correcting from the crazy numbers. I mean, do we really think a Hulk was worth $35,000? I mean, really? <laughs> well, I passed on it at 5500 back in <laughs> No, but I mean, like, really? $35,000? What? <laughs> you know, watch that retailed for eight grand and used to sit in the case. Yeah, people, people didn't like them that much. They were too green. green. That's what I they like. were too green. It just it wasn't, it shouldn't be a $35,000 watch. Yeah, now it's not made and it's kind of cool. So 20 grand, okay, that's mm-hmm. a strong number to me. Yeah, I agree. Well, they, I mean, it's funny. I had a conversation with a guy. I reached back out to him because he was offering. We were negotiating on a fifty-seven eleven in rows, and we had one that we we had priced at three fifty, which was like within market. It was actually 
like a, a pretty fair price within market. And he would have bought it except for the taxes. He said, oh, the taxes put right. it over. Right. So he, he moved on. So I reached out to him and said, hey, man, by the way, like, look, now the watch is $240,000. We're well within whatever budget. And he's like, he goes, dude, I wish I had waited. And I go, yeah. He goes, yeah, I bought it for $300,000. Somebody else. I thought I got a great deal. You know, and I and I'm like I'm like, dude. Well, good thing you didn't just buy. Good thing you didn't buy it for me for three fifty. Right. Um, you know, and and the other thing is that you know, like, so I have conversations with customers like, oh, you guys, you know, you're you're only uh, you know you're only looking to make profits, whatever. Like, listen, in situations like this, like in March 2020, I remember how many watches we sold. Oh God, cost. yeah. I mean, almost everything at that point was selling below cost. But we just said, hey, listen, we're not going to just sit here and do nothing. We're not going to just you know, put our hands over our eyes and, and fingers in our ears and pretend like this is not happening. We're going to sell them to the market. And, and if that means we got to take some lumps, we got to. And I'm looking at some of our inventory now where, you know, we took a flyer on it. Like, a, like the, the 5711 that we had for 350 that's the that's same watch. You know? Whoops. <laughs> yeah. So, yep. Yeah. So, like, are we going to take a loss on it? Yeah. But, you know, there's, I mean, what else are we going to do with anything? We can't, we're not going to just pretend like the value didn't go down and just try to find some fool to pay 350 it's not going to happen like you just have to that's part of the part of the business um so you know but we're still i mean i still see from reputable dealers daytona white dial daytonas for fifty two thousand dollars. yeah no we laughed about that i mean you know we we actually uh you know i was very aggressive on that because the last show i went to like six weeks ago i saw what was going on and I was like, we got to move. And I even got some pushback here because they were like, oh, it's not going to be that. I'm like, trust me. I see this. I've been through this enough times. We're going to just beat the world down. Uh, and now everybody's following. But I did a comparison shopping. And yet there was three or four guys who were still over 50 when I was pricing them at 39950 It's like, guys. And it's not like they're they're just going to keep buying. Like, so we don't have to name the dealer, but there's a specific dealer who's doing that. And I have customers who deal with them as well. They're, they're a bit of a smaller dealer, but they're reputable. We've dealt with them before and they just refuse to drop the price. And, and I had customers like, look, you know, the watch is like, so we made an offer and we told them, we told them, hey, listen, we're being conservative. We're taking a wait, wait and see. We're still buying, but we're not going to be chasing markets. And they go, oh, how could you offer me this when you see this watch up from this dealer at 52,000? I go, Offer the watch to them, see what they say. You know what the response was? Not buying it. Right right <laughs> yeah. It's like, okay, well, so is it really a 50000 No, it's a frozen no. market in his world, and that's the problem. And yes. then, again, as long as you're trading, you're going to be fine. And that's what I've always learned. Right. I was, you know, again, I've been doing this forever. I had the opportunity in the younger days to spend a lot of time with some of the early hedge fund guys who – you know, taught me a lot of hard lessons about trading. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> admit your mistakes early because <laughs> they never it never start yeah. smelling better with age. Um, you know, exactly. Just rip that Band-Aid off. So, yeah, that's what you do. And that's great. But, again, then we'll feel flush and then we'll be back in the market, and you know, heavily when things we think there might be a bottom. Because there will be a bottom and things mm-hmm. always cycle back. And everybody always reacts, overreacts both ways. You know, when things start running up, everybody chases in and, oh, my God, I want to buy it. And then when things start dropping a little bit, everybody panics and oversells. Um, so it's trying to just find that equilibrium um, where that market will settle because we really don't know exactly where it's settled. But, you know, enough experience and enough time and enough knowing the clients. I mean, I think the advantage we have is we talk to so many clients on a daily basis. and You can really get the temperature. 
the keyword is talk, yes. by the way. There's other there's other companies out there who don't they they want to automate everything and they don't want to speak to their customers. But like, you know, I mean, and it's funny, I get sometimes get pushback. I'll you know, I'll get a I'll get a, a, a new an offer sent over to me and say, hey, reach out to this customer. And I'll reach out saying, hey, when's the best time to call you? And the replies, reply back is, start, no need to call, just tell me yes or no. And I go, hey, listen, you know, our policy is that we speak to our customer, especially if you're making an offer over X dollars, like we want to speak to you first. But like realistically, and, and I understand, you know, people are busy and I'm not trying to waste their time, but we want to know what's happening, yeah. not only because we want to know who the customer is and there's a fraud issue and all that stuff, but also like, we need to be able to talk to them and find out what's going on. Why are you buying this watch and why are you making this offer and all that stuff. So if somebody makes me an offer for $10,000 below my ask price, I'm not just going to delete it. I want to yeah. know why. You know, maybe, you know, and if I start getting a bunch of those, maybe we need to really pay attention. So, um, yeah, talking for us, I guess, you know, we do a high volume, but we also, you know, we built, we built our business on speaking to customers specifically and not trying to automate it all out. And I think that we better oh, hugely. From that. And I mean, again, um, and we talk to other dealers. I mean, I'm very friendly with a lot of these guys who have been around a long time. And, you know, I spend my weekends getting their feels for the market, too, because, you know, I can't see everything. We have a good reach because we're global. Um, but my phone rings a lot, too. And they're like, you know, what are you guys seeing? Where do you think it's going to go? What do we, you know, and everybody kind of feeds off each other. And the guys who have been in it a long time think very much like we do. Um, and they're like, hey, we're going to take some lumps. We're going to move through some things. But, you know, the world's certainly not ending. Whereas a lot of these younger, you know, newbies to the industries have a lot of debt and have a lot of, you know, pressure on them to to not show losses either. You know, they got a lot of people looking over their shoulders. Yeah. And, you know, we don't have that pressure. We can trade and move on and go through it. But I think you'll see a normal correction coming and. Uh, it is a correction. It's really not a crash as much as people like to over-dramatize it. Mm -hmm. And I think for a crash to happen at this point, it would just have to be, there would have to be some reason that all the people that have moved into the market and actually spent money, all these new guys that we've seen, just decide that we don't want, we don't like or want watches anymore. And I mean, if that happened, yeah, we have a crash. Uh, I just don't, it's hard for me to imagine a scenario when it, when it comes to that. I mean, it would have to be a like a like a nuclear war, like you know, hey, we have much better and more important things to deal with type situation, um, which looks like it's you know not going to happen. <laughs> Hopefully, yes. Um, but, no, I think you're exactly yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, it would take a you know catastrophic global event to really you know change everybody's mm -hmm. perception of what the world is, and and it also goes back to having fun. And I mean, you know, that's one of the things that. People still love talking about it. People still love doing it. And even when they're feeling bad because they probably lost a little money on certain things, it's probably better than their stock portfolio right now. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, it's a store. Watches have always been a store of value so long as you buy right. them right. Right. They became an asset class after 2020, realistically. And, I mean, what I'd say is that they're infinitely more tradable than they, than they were back in, you know, 2015. Right, like that's that's a, that's the truth, and I think that's one thing. No matter what happens at this point, uh, you know, watches are all brands. Like we were talking about Nardin, there was a point in which, if you offered me a rose gold Nardin, I was offering you fifteen cents on the dollar. Right, so fifteen percent of the original retail price. There are no brands that that exist for anymore. Like Daniel Roth, like some of these Daniel Roths that I'm seeing for fifteen and twenty thousand dollars used to be two thousand dollar watches. So like if you bought that watch 
you would just have to love it because the reason why it was a $2,000 watcher or why like a wholesale dealer or somebody who was buying it in order to resell, they had no clue how. So there's six guys on the planet that want to buy this watch, sir. You're one of them. I have to find one of the other five guys, right? Like I've had that conversation. I have, a, I have a customer that loves like weird esoteric things and he used to love buying them. He knew he would take a bath because like, I would have that conversation. I go, listen, you're one of five people that want to buy this watch. So I got to find the four other guys and figure out when they want to buy it. How long am I going to have this watch? That's really not an Yeah, issue. liquidity has um, added so. greatness to the market. And I think that's going to continue because yeah. there's definitely now people. And there's also guys who love to buy in the down. I mean, you know that. You have a bunch of those mm-hmm. customers. I have a bunch of those customers. They're like, you know, I'm not paying the 200 that the 5711 was. But suddenly when it's back down to 120, it certainly looks a lot more enticing. Um and they feel a little safer in it, that it's already some of the wind out of the sails. So I think I think you'll see some of that Listen, come into the market as well. We see a stock crash, a crypto crash, and you know some of these uh, hype watches going down 30%, and I still got a $350,000 wire from a new customer right. last week for a watch that he's been thinking about for a while. So like people are definitely spending money, and and I guess that's, that's the last thing I wanna to touch on. And you mentioned it earlier um, when it comes to like Jorn, and some of the Richard Mills and things like that, like the top end of the market, it got so, so uh, there used to be a point in which if a customer spent a million dollars in watches, like he was a whale amongst, like that was like the biggest customer, right? And and I I think that I saw that last year, our biggest customer spent over $10 million. So like the, the, the top end of that market, people who, and we've talked about this before, maybe spend, you know, a few million dollars every year on art have now moved into the watch market as well because they Correct. see the value there. And so it's it's exposed, the watch market has exposed itself, the hot, super high-end watch market has exposed itself to a level of wealth that it had never really been seen before. Um, and, you know, that's one thing. It seems like those those watches have stayed extremely strong. Um, you know, the, the top, top end and that low, low end are really strong. So that middle is kind of where things with yeah i think so too i mean again um, we're seeing it like yeah. i said that hundred thousand plus part of the market i mean certainly is transacting more than we've almost ever seen um which is mm-hmm. great and yeah prices are down somewhat yeah. but i think a lot of those guys felt like this is an opportunity to buy a dip on especially a watch that you know like that t10 that sold at auction today they made 10 of them ever mm-hmm. they're never going to make another one so like you know it might not come up in another three months or three years. Uh, you know, one might not even hit the market. Um, you know, I've only seen two in my life um, hit the market. We had one of them a couple of years ago. Um, and back then, we, you know, we thought it was all the money in the world. It was a half million dollar watch. Now it just hammered at a million and a half. Um, well, also, when that watch was manufactured, if you wanted to learn about the guy who made it, like, how would you do There'd be no like real right. way to do that. Now you can watch hours upon hours of interviews with the man online. And that, I mean, for me as a buyer, like that's how I get excited about things. Like, you know, the reason why I bought my Garrick, the reason why I buy like, you know, my Moser and things like that, like is because I can find a real connection and I can sit there and just like, <laughs> I could get myself excited by going on YouTube and seeing, you know, learning everything there is to know about, about a, a subject without having to worry about like going to a boutique and thinking or even like talking to a guy like me like i talk with i talk about watches with customers i'm as honest as it gets but like obviously i have an incentive to sell 
watches. So if I'm telling a customer about or telling a friend about how great a watch is, in the back of their mind, like, no, right. just not selling on this. But now I could just, I mean, like, obviously that's like uh, that's an incentive for me, right? Um, though at this point in my career, like, I, I don't really care if you buy it or not. I'm, and I'm actually excited about watches. But um, if but you don't have to talk to somebody like me. You don't have to talk to a boutique guy. Right. You can just you can go on your own and learn at your own pace, whatever research. you want to do. And that's definitely helped a lot with these smaller brands and I think the smaller brands are going to hold up well because you know traditionally when you do have a correction and all of them I've been through before everything else dropped dramatically except for Rolex Paddock maybe AP um, but everything else would really drop um, and we're not seeing that as much I mean the independents seem to be holding up even better because I think more people have gotten into that part of the market so that's going to be I think a different in this correction, I think this something we'll see differently is that the independents, I think, are going to hold up better than uh, maybe even some of the big brands. Yeah, I mean, people are, it's not that people are running from the market, they're just moving into what they think is like either what they like or what they, what is actually cool. Like, what is the real stuff, right? Like, you're going from the mass manufacturer stuff to the stuff that you know is handmade and limited by how many, like, Jorn watches are limited by how many watches. Jorn can inspect on his line, or at least yeah. that's what he told me, right? So, um, but I mean, you know, that's, that's, you have an artisan making art, and that's how he can limit his capacity. So, you know, and that's the same with a lot of these brands, like Vuitton right. and, um, and Romain Gautier, and even Moser, um, you know, all these brands are limited by, you know, by actual artisans, and that's where people are kind of going, so... It's interesting. Um, so okay, so so what you're telling me, Manjos, is that the watch industry? <laughs> we're not going out of business anytime soon. Don't throw your out the window. I just think you know, we're going to get hopefully back to normal, and uh, you know we're going to have to work a little harder for the next few months. Uh, which again, George came over to me today, and he was like, "Oh, this is going to be your favorite time of year because all you want to do is grind," and it's true. I love to you know, oh yes, grind every day, and that's what we're going to do. That's right. Oh man, I mean, I I started in this industry in 2012, right? And and I think I, I was looking back, and my average for 2012, my average sale price was like 4,500 dollars, and I did like roughly the same amount of leads that I did last year, and then like, well, even even looking back like to 2016, it was like 8,000 dollars, and now for me personally, I think it's like uh, like close to 30,000 dollars, which, you know, I mean, listen, it's easy when it's easy. That's I love that saying in terms of sales like it's easy when it's easy but when it's not that's when you see you know who's actually right and who's good at this and that's what I love that's why kind of I'm excited about this market because like I felt like you just had so many people who would just spend all day telling you how great they were because of the watch market and you know now I'm like okay let's see (laughs) now we're gonna find out let's see it's easy when it's easy we'll see what happens let's let's go Exactly. So, all right, man, just, well, we're coming awesome. up on an as, as, as usual, um, it goes faster with us. Oh, yeah. Well, listen, I wish we could do this once a week, but uh, probably probably <laughs> not enough talk about uh, once a week. But um, uh, is there anything else we want no, to cover? I Did think we, we miss any other brands we talked about? Stuff, but I think we should do it in, uh, you know, two or three weeks. Let's come back and uh, see where we're at. Cool. All right. Awesome. We'll put it on the calendar, right? Well, guys, listen. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Uh, it's coming up on an hour now, so if you're still listening with us, you're a champion and we love you. Um, check us out, YouTube Studio or uh, uh, Watchbox Studios on YouTube. Manjos has a, he doesn't have the, the um, 
what, what was your old show? Marker Rap. I just blank on the name of your show. Marker Rap. So Marker Rap is dead, but you have Correct. Around the Crown. Yep. Yeah, right? Uh, which is an awesome show. I love it. Love doing it with Tim. That's right. And so if you want to... Yeah, Tim Masso and Mike Manjos, that's a, that's a power team right there. It's better than this podcast, I'll tell you that. And, uh, and um, that's a great show. But also, Watchbox Reviews, Tim does all his hands-on. I mean, listen, guys, I watch them. You know, I, I, I work out of our Florida office. We're building two new, like, brick-and-mortars down here. And once that happens, I'll be back and forth all the time, one in Boca, one in Miami Beach. And um, But, you know, I'm at home. I'm not in the office. So the way I get my daily fix of watches is watching Tim's YouTube uh, reviews. And, and he, I mean, nobody uploads more content, watch content, than uh, Tim also. So go check that out. Subscribe to this podcast, please. Um, you'll catch it on almost every podcast platform. Subscribe to it. Leave a review. If you hate it, tell us. If you love it. <laughs> tell us also um i i so i've discussed i've uh been talking to a few different collectors who reached out to me personally we're going to start doing um like tales from the desk i think is what we're going to call it so um you know watch collectors have been around for a long time who've seen it all and done it all uh i want to do a few different interviews so if you're interested in doing something like that you can remain anonymous we can just call you by your first name we can make up a silly name i don't care um just want to hear from you guys and, and have some more content. So if you're interested in that, reach out to me directly. You can hit, uh, email me at jthanos at thewatchbox.com. Hit me on on uh, Instagram at Mr. Thanos. Uh, Mike yep. Mandrus is on Instagram as well. What's Mike your Instagram Mandrus. handle? <laughs> Mike Mandrus, catch him there. Um, that's right. And, uh, and uh, yeah, so that's that's the best way to catch Mandrus. So, all right, guys. Well, thank you so much for listening. And Thanks, we'll guys. catch you next time. Bye.